Welcome to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, I was just talking to you, Richard, before we started about some more wildlife that you're experiencing up on the up on the river today. This is my, uh, you know, summer on the coast. We are in the Georgia Strait, or it's also known as Salish Sea on the Sunshine Coast. And so, yeah, the uh, harbor seal's been hanging around. They usually come and check on us. And we've been watching uh, a little pack of ravens. Looks like an older one, like a mother and three fledglings huh. learning to uh, to eat cockles, to shatter shells and pluck the bits out and so forth. So, That's so cool. They're a bit rackety. You might hear them. They, they, <laughs> they kick up a noise. They've been working our waterfront for a while. Well, uh, I've been busy getting ready for Keto Fest and working a real yes. job. It's been fun. <laughs> You've been busy, busy. No, no kidding. Yeah, I've been a busy, busy person. But yesterday, um, I fixed three things in the studio all in the same morning. Uh, the, the phones were out. Yeah. The AC was dead. Ouch. And the light switch went out. So... All three people were here at the same time fixing everything, but now it's like all ready to go. Everything's working and good, and we're making shows. Yeah, That's we're awesome. making shows and uh, doing the crazy music for Better Know Framework. Run that stuff. All right, dude, what do you got? Have you ever been to extensionmethod.net? Hmm, I don't think so. Home of 797 extension methods for C-sharp, VB, F-sharp, switch, Kotlin. I don't even know how to pronounce it. I've never seen that language before. Maybe Mads does. And JavaScript. Wow. Yeah. And you can search for them. How cool is that? That is cool. That's a lot. ExtensionMethod.net. I've not seen this. I've never seen it either, but uh, somebody pointed it out to me today. Yeah, very good. And just the ones on the front page are pretty cool. Yeah, and, and Kotlin is a is a JVM language. It's the uh, the JetBrains guys. That's their sort of you know next generation thinking about uh, you know, uh, mobile programming. You oh, know, very think good. Think of Kotlin like Swift, but for Android. Well, there you go. That makes perfect sense now. There you go. Awesome. That's it. That's our friends at JetBrains did yeah. that. Uh, Hattie yeah. Hariri. Hattie Hariri. And so there you go. ExtensionMethod.net has all this good stuff. All that good stuff. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1314 from June of 2016 with Mr. Torgensen when we were talking about C-Sharp 7. That was uh, NDC, NDC Oslo. Right. I think that's where we really talked about this whole idea of the sort of Cambrian explosion that, that C-Sharp is transforming and the good things that were going on there. Got right. a few great comments on that. This one's from James Erie. Again, a couple of years ago that he made this comment where he said, uh, really interesting to hear you talk about new things coming in C-sharp, but also the difficulties in retrofitting new concepts into such a mature language. Right. On that note, I wondered, do you ever foresee a fourth .NET language being created and adopted? Fourth? Dude, they came out day one with 22 languages. Not that they, <laughs> you know, stuck around all that long. But I guess when he means fourth, he means C-sharp, VB.net, F-sharp. So the, that would be the fourth, which is, you know, to this day, you can still buy Cobol.net and Fortran.net. Well, they're, they're in the, at the marketplace. You right. know, they're a few hundred dollars. IBM makes the Fortran.net. And I think it's uh, uh, Fujitsu. Fujitsu that maintains Cobol.net. Yeah. 
Uh, James goes on to say, seeing how much traction Apple and Google have gained with Swift and Go simply by the virtue of being able to start over and learn from the past without being hamstrung by it, I can't help but think that a new, lightweight, simple language would add a lot to the .NET community. Now, I'm going to defer this one over to Mads, but you know, James has been a regular listener for a long time, and he's commented a few times. I'm sure he's got a mug already, but now I'm going to send him a copy of Music to Code By. So, James, thanks for your ongoing support. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you, and if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. Dot send or something like that. I don't know. I'm trying to <laughs> extension method. I don't know. Extension Didn't work. Method. Sorry. I'm just not that fast anymore. Not today anyway. All right. Well, <laughs> let's bring Matt's on. Slow. <laughs> Matt's Torgerson is the program manager for the C-Sharp language in Microsoft and runs the C-Sharp design meetings. Prior to joining Microsoft in 2005, he was an associate professor at the University of Aarhus. Did I say that right? That was pretty close. All right. The Danes will recognize that from what you said, yes. Well, you were doing programming language research there, and uh, you got snagged up by Microsoft, and boy, wasn't that a good idea. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was a fun turn. Yeah. So what do you think of a fourth language? Is that ever going to happen? Well, it certainly could. You know, uh, I think we're – so James was referring to the the increasing difficulty with shoehorning new things into a language that's getting bigger and bigger because you kind of have to uh, – you kind of have to fit everything new in with everything existing without breaking anyone. Mm, and right. so that is a challenge for us as language designers and implementers to do. Um, our job, though, is to – try to make it so that it doesn't feel like a challenge to the end developer in that we we keep hammering on it until it fits and then we look, then we release it right so um and i'm as surprised as anyone that we've been able to pull this off for so long but it seems like <laughs> so far so far we have and so while there're definitely things that we could clean up and do better next time and all that with a new language yeah um there's a pretty high bar for doing that it, right. certainly if you think of it as a replacement for c sharp that would be very hard because c sharp has so much adoption and it has so much right you know there's mm. just so many billions of lines of code out there and people are generally very happy using c sharp we continue to get good vibes you know in in surveys and stuff so right so if we think about a replacement for C-sharp, I think that our motivation is very low. Like, let's see when people start saying, oh, C-sharp feels so old and gnarly, and yeah. okay, then we'll talk. But uh, but for now, that's there's just no reason to do it. Uh, but I got to think you have moments in these battles that you have, these, these debates that you have, where it's like, wouldn't it be fun to have a clean slate? Oh, absolutely. Like... <laughs> Absolutely. It, but, you know, then I think, but hey, it's also kind of fun to have users, you know? Yeah, uh, funny. So, so, yeah, big, yeah, well, that's that's the trade-off, isn't it? Because, look, even if you do come out with some language that has new features that are for a specific purpose, all the C-sharp people are going to want it, right? They're going to want it in C-sharp because it's just such a yeah. Swiss army knife. I can't I can't think of anything that would stand by itself without causing a kerfuffle. Right. But, but you know, then there's the, is there room for another language next to C sharp? Um, right. And, 
I think that's a different question where maybe for a certain domain or for people who grew up in a certain style of programming or whatever, uh, maybe, you know, there's an opening where a new language could do something that's hard to graft onto C sharp. Yeah. And I actually, right. and I actually think that we've already seen that with F sharp where even as C sharp is very eagerly adopting uh, features from a functional uh, viewpoint, uh, we are never getting close to becoming an actual functional language. We, we, C sharp is not going to get the feel and the kind of that special, uh, you know, terse type inferred, uh, curried vibe mm. that a functional language has. Mm. And so if, if that does it for people for certain, both for certain, again, for certain mindsets or certain, uh, domains where that is particularly useful, uh, then, you know, F sharp is a great alternative to C sharp. And I absolutely encourage people to go use it if, uh, if, if that's work, the works better for them or they're just having more fun at work or whatever. So, um, we've, I think F sharp is an example of, yeah, that can totally happen and that can be a success right. next to sure. C sharp. Uh, so I think that is, I can certainly not rule out that there would be another one of those, but I, I just don't have like the, what would be the specific thing that that language would bring that, right. that would make room for it. It most likely wouldn't be an object oriented language, although I guess it would have to well, be if it's on the well, framework. Yeah, if it wants to interrupt with the APIs and the framework, which are mainly sort of object-oriented in design, then, hmm. yeah, it probably would have Interesting. some object-oriented support. But F-sharp, you know, being at, at root a functional language, hmm. it has it has a fine object-oriented system inside as well. So hmm. you could totally imagine a language, another language where it's not the main paradigm, but yeah, it can sure, it can interrupt. So I don't know. I'd, I'd also th think in terms of C-sharp, I don't feel as stale at all. It still seems like a language that other languages take ideas from. I mean, a, a sync and a wait have shown up all over the place now. And that was a C-sharp oh, yeah. idea, if I remember correctly. JavaScript. Yes. Mm. Certainly the way it was done was, uh, that was something that we came up with for C-sharp, yes. So <clears throat> I, I like to think that we participate on the cutting edge, uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, sometimes... We steal from other good ideas on the cutting edge, and sometimes we take the, you know, we put on the, um, the yellow jersey, as they say in Tour de France, and uh, and we take the lead for a bit, and uh, and we're the ones who come up with the next feature. So uh, that's and that's definitely an ambition of ours to be part of that state of the art of at least of industrial programming languages, where we um, we're sometimes the ones who come up with the great new feature that others are eager to mimic. Yeah, that's got to be a good day when everybody wants that. That's the way to think about asynchronous programming. Like that's a that's a win when folks want that in their language too. Yeah, I feel pretty good about that. When you have these C sharp design meetings, is there ever a feature somebody suggests that none of you guys had even thought about? Like, oh, wow, that's cool. I mean, I kind of kind of seems like when you're putting together ideas, you have a a backlog a mile long already. We do. I think that um, it's very rare that somebody can completely surprise us with something out of left field. We were like, wow, never thought of that. <laughs> it occasionally happens um, more so in the small than in the large, where there's yeah. like a particular little nifty feature that's like, hey, hey, that's kind of cool. Um, I'm struggling to come up with a concrete example right now, but, but, it, but I know, I, I know the feeling of, of that having happened, mm. but mm -hmm. yes, we do have, we do have a lot of exposure both to, uh, 
people suggesting things for C-sharp and also just to what other programming languages do. So it does take a lot to surprise us. Um, you know, but, but it's a, it's that kind of thing that we're on the lookout for as well. Like those new perspectives and even sort of the German of idea of how can you look at something differently and all of a sudden, um, a world of options opens up for, for a, a direction to take the language. Have you ever had a suggestion for Visual Basic that seemed like it was a better fit in C Sharp and ended up there instead? Uh, yeah, we probably have, you know. Um, but again, I can't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It certainly happens. Yeah. I mean, we, um, we pool the ideas so I can, you know, by the time we started to take an idea seriously, more often than not, I've lost track of where it originally came from. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. Sure, that's awesome. So, um, you obviously feel a huge responsibility in doing any kind of changes to the language and uh, probably spend an inordinate amount of time trying to think of all of the ways that this could blow up um, existing code. And so, are you, your customers are also involved, aren't they? Yeah, so we are fortunate now to be in a world where we can we can do this whole thing in a very open manner right so um all out you know our design discussions are still in a they still take place in a closed meeting okay. but the notes from the meeting get published and um and there's a whole lot of discussion on our github site for c-sharp right. um lang under the dot network yeah and um and also we um we're getting better at releasing early prototypes of important features and having people use them uh, on their code bases. So a good example is the, the feature of nullable reference types, which we're working on for the next major version of C-sharp. Mm. And we, um, we've had now a few rounds of public prototypes of that feature because it, it needs a lot of adjustment and we need to understand the effect that it has on uh, sort of in real life. And people have been really good at picking it up and giving us good detailed feedback, both the positive and the negative, and it has really helped. It has really very much shaped the feedback that we got from that. Would a nullable reference type be a, a special base class that things are, are are inherited from, or would it affect all classes? Yeah, so you're sort of asking about what the feature does. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to imagine what the impact would be. Right, so... The uh, the idea is that similar to value types, you can mark a a reference type as nullable uh, when you use it. So let's say you have a string or uh, a class foo, you can mark a variable as being of type foo question mark, and that means that it's intended to be null. So the so the first sort of line of defense here is to give people a tool for expressing when. Uh, a given variable or parameter, return value, and so on, whether it's supposed to be null or not. So you put a question mark on if it's supposed to be null. And now if you don't put a question mark on, well, it's not supposed to be null, which is sort of new in the language. <laughs> mm. Like you say string today, you mean something that might be null. But we're doing we're adding that differentiation so that uh, we can then help you check whether you're acting according to the intent that you expressed like that. Yeah. And it, uh, it's a slightly... It's a very gnarly feature to add, to be honest, because um, it sort of changes the meaning of a naked reference type. Right. Uh, and it, it causes, all else equal, it will cause the compiler to start giving warnings on existing code 
which is actually, that's part of the appeal of the feature is that you could take your existing code and strengthen it. So you want to know about when are you, whenever you're sort of using a, a reference, when, let's say you put null into an, an existing reference type thingy. Um, you will, um, you'll now start getting a warning. And now you have to think about, well, did I mean putting the null in there? Then I should mark it nullable. And, and if I didn't, well, then I have a bug in my code that could lead to a null reference exception later. And I should not assign the null in there. Right. So it's sort of forcing you to think, but because it's starting to light up warnings and existing code, it's a feature that you'll have to opt into because we don't want to break you without any warning. So mm. it's the first language feature we're adding that actually needs an opt-in uh, in order to be used. And that's a, that's it's cool, been though. very, you know, getting it to where even when you do opt-in, you don't get too many spurious false positives and whatnot. That it's not like a sea of warnings and totally sort of disheartening to you. Yeah. And you will turn it off and never use it again. Right, um, never use it again. You know what this reminds me of? And man, I'm putting my old school hat on when I put this on. Adding option explicit to Visual Basic yeah. circa uh, 1996. Yeah. Which yeah. was a good yeah, idea. For the same reason, it made you think. Yeah, but when you turn that on, if you'd been lazy with your typing, like your code barfed a lot of warnings. That's true, yeah. Mm. And it is very similar. And we are, we do have sort of a little trepidation because we, we made it this far without any options in the compiler for, you know, what right. features should be on or off, but we think it's worth it. So we're willing to take this one and uh, hopefully it doesn't open the floodgates and we'll have seven different dialects of C sharp. Honestly, the idea is that if we could, we would add this without an option. And we think everybody should should eventually move to getting this extra level of expression of intent as well as, you know, enforcement of intent. Right. This is what type systems are for. Yes. Right? I mean, this is w why you have ty static typing in the first place. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, we haven't decided yet, but it's quite possible that we will release it in Visual Studio so that where, when you start a new project, it'll be on by default. Right. So it's a new right. normal. Mm. And then you'll have you'll have to fight to get out of it for a new project. Uh, whereas for for legacy, or not legacy necessarily, but just existing projects, we will let you say, "Okay, I'm ready to do this. Uh, let me go do some work and get my code sort of null clean, if you will." Yeah, right, null cleaned. Yeah. So it's always the transition period is the hard part. It's like if if it's going to be greenfield, this is a great feature. We'll be happy with it. But is I need to be able to recompile this brownfield project, and I'm not prepared to take on the burden of straightening out all of my nulls. Right. So a surprising amount of the design of the feature is not about how does it work semantically in the language, but it's also about what are the gestures that you can make uh, around, like to what what degree of granularity should you be able to express which part of your codes are, are opted into new, this new feature and which aren't, for instance. You know, right. That kind of designing the experience around it so that you can approach this gradually and does and you don't get yeah. discouraged away can i have a, a a class or you know a dll that that does do this and and a bunch that don't so i could transform my code gradually not make this all at once leap right and that's yeah and, and you certainly will be able to but should we have granularity all you know all the way down into your code we're not sure right. yet uh, whether it's like per assembly or or deeper than that. Mm, yeah. Um, I can see why you wouldn't, you don't want to go, it'll create its own mess if you get too granular too. Right. Then you leave people 
then they have to clean up from that <laughs> after right, you know right. sort of uh so it's a very difficult balance there's only so many technical issues here this is a a a people issue a utilization issue with a span of of experience and time and obligations for the developers like you, you and you you know i i got to bet that the ones that are that are the 200 plus comments on your blog post and that are in github the most active guys are definitely going to come at it from a different angle than your very large block of developers that, that write code as their job and don't move my cheese, man. <laughs> like just that yeah. my code worked one day and it doesn't work today. That's very true. And that it's uh, that's an interesting challenge in and of itself, actually. Even more so that now that we're in the open in a way that um, the, the vocal part of the community isn't necessarily a representative part of the community. Right. I think that, that's probably actually probably not the case. So, uh, so we have to be careful that we, that we use the vocal community to understand ramifications and to get new ideas and to, you know, to play off, uh, design ideas with, but we don't necessarily use them as a voting block for, uh, to represent the C-sharp community. Uh, so, so we have to, we have to think that the, Maybe the general C sharp developer would be a little more hesitant to be forced to spend a day putting question marks all over their code um, than um, than the people on the uh, on the site, for instance, who are probably more language eager and and more like, hey, yeah, let me go play with this new thing. Mm. Let me push through with this, right. you know. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Let me force this upon all my coworkers. <laughs> so, <laughs> and Mads, give me one moment here for this very important message. Hey, Carl here to say that Music to Code By is now an app called Music to Flow By. Now you can listen to the tracks on your phone with offline capability. The first three tracks are free, and the entire catalog is available by subscription with a new track arriving every month. Just go to musictoflowby.com for all the links. And we're back. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. It's Donna Rocks. We're talking to the Mads Torgensen and talking about this diver, you know, the side effect of having a programming language that's been around this long and this widely adopted and loved is that those sort of activist members, those very engaged members of your community who are quick to respond are so different from the folks that have are oblivious to this conversation even going on right mm. now. But the moment you push that code out, you're going to hear from them. Right. That to me is the really challenging thing is that the only thing they notice is when you get all the way to the update. And it's super easy to fall back on the, we've been talking about this in public for months. Where mm. were you? Right. Yeah. yeah. That's just not going to cut it. <laughs> no, it's not good enough. Just because it's public doesn't mean people are participating. No. Right. They're participating in the way that matters the most. They use your product. Mm. Right. So we we still have the responsibility to to build the right product. It's squarely on us, right? The community is doing us a favor by engaging us in early conversation, and as a and as a benefit to them, we we do more of the right thing, and all else equal, are, are somewhat influenced by them. But uh, at the end of the day, we're responsible for the rest of the millions of C sharp developers being also uh, pretty happy with what we did. So we right. can't just you know, lean back and and listen to the voices coming at us. We also have to go out and seek out um, sort of the more representative view. And, and that's part of what we do as well. Yeah. 
No, it's a, and is it, it's got to be interesting for you to push back against your enthusiasts. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. For the sort of masses. Right, because we're also enthusiasts. Like, we get carried away by, by what's possible and uh, by, by, you know, the technical challenges. We are like nerds, right? And that's, we, that's sure. required to do the job. Right. But, uh, but you, you so easily get carried away by, oh, if we did this and then this and then this, and, you know, we add uh, this new kind of type and then we add new, this new kind of operator and it all, like, click, click, clicks together and we have this magic thing going on. Oh, yeah, but wait, um, how's anyone actually going to be able to understand all that or adopt all that you know so so that and a lot of the language design process is uh, pushing back on ourselves and and pushing and pushing and sometimes that means an idea goes all the way back out to the mm -hmm. trash bin mm -hmm. and sometimes it right. means that we we keep simplifying it and reshaping it and mulling it over until all of a sudden hey this kind of makes sense uh oh now it, it's Surprising how often a feature doesn't start with the grand idea or philosophy behind it. You'd think that we'd be like, or maybe you think that we'll, we'll go in there and say, oh, we need something that is sort of like this. And now we have to figure out the details. It sort of addresses this problem and has this kind of viewpoint. But that's totally not like we'll play with details and we'll like it. OK, if we this might, you know, solve this particular code problem and, and if we do it this way and that way and so on. And only later will we get the insights, the aha moment that says, now we know what the philosophical backbone of the feature is. And now we're, and only then are we in business, right? Now we can hone to that philosophy and we can, and we can make the feature slick and consistent and coherent based on having that core idea. But it doesn't start out with that. Very rarely does it start out with that. So you can, right. an example of that is, is the, um, the tuples feature that we put into C sharp seven. Which, uh, there are so many ways you could skin that cat of having tuples in a language. And, um, and the way we actually ended up doing it was very far from our minds when we started. But once we had that idea of like, what is the core idea here? Oh, the core idea is that the main use for, for tuples is to be not the, certainly not the only, but like the, by far the main, the, the most common usage is going to be returning multiple things from a method. Okay. Right. Now we're in business because now we can start putting up an analogy to parameter lists. We can say, okay, it should look like a parameter list. It should behave uh, like a parameter list in terms of how, how you would expect it to work from a performance standpoint. Okay, parameter list copies all of its parameters on the stack. A return list, so to speak, in quotation marks, like a tuple, should also copy. Okay, so it should be a value type. Okay, parameters can be assigned. They're, they're actually mutable, whether we like it or not. Okay. Tuple element should also be assignable, whether we like it or not. Like, so we, so all of a sudden we have this guiding principle that gets, that we can build a beautiful coherent feature around. Until then, we're just throwing around ideas and it doesn't really gel. Mm. I'm wondering if you guys have ever used the code base that is GitHub, all the GitHub repositories of C sharp projects, somehow automated downloading, loading, running, compiling against new versions of C sharp or, or looking for particular things that people are doing in their projects, maybe some machine learning. Have you guys used that? Uh, we aren't very good at it yet. Um, it's, it's certainly, you could do simple things. You could certainly query for certain feature usages if they are, um, if they're easily distinguished syntactically, cause you can just sort of text search for them. Hmm. We haven't, we don't have a good, I would like us to get somewhere someday to where we can, um, 
we can build most of the public uh, C-sharp projects out there for the purposes of analyzing them. Yeah. Uh, but we're not nearly smart enough to do that yet um, over the over GitHub repositories. But we do use them as a source of information. Yeah. Um, we'll see how, you know, as we get smarter, is there a way we can get, you know, the Rosalind analyzers in there and learn something valuable about how how people code, com- you know, correlate that with... Uh, with timestamps and the yeah. evolution of projects. And you can also maybe start charting adoption of features. Uh, maybe we can, if we're building a new feature, we're trying to uh, figure out how commonly useful it's going to be. Maybe we can look for existing code patterns mm. that it would replace, right. or that it would improve. Well, now that you own GitHub, that should be easier, a lot easier. You know, you got <laughs> GitHub and Azure. Surely you can do yeah. something there. Sure. I, I mean, I... It's going to be easier in the sense that I guess we have the option of putting some of those features into GitHub mm. instead of having to do it from the outside. But yeah. I, I don't think you'll see us starting to grok the people's private repos and stuff like that. Yeah, private repos, that would be, that wouldn't be cool. That would be terrible, right? So, uh, yeah. so we don't gain that much of an advantage from having GitHub here. Um, okay. it's something we could do almost just as well, even if GitHub was on its own. Interesting. Well, uh, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to announce a personal safety spray you can bring with you on vacation to Pamplona this week. It's called Nullable. Oh, no. <laughs> also, uh, turns out to be timely because the running of the bulls is this week. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing else going in Pamplona. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I've been. You know, 500 years ago, a group of sailors got a really stupid idea. <laughs> hey, but that's this? nothing compared to let's keep doing it. Like, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is a, this is this is Darwin in action right here because you know <laughs> there's only a certain number of genes that are going to get that that think that's a good idea that are going to keep getting replaced. This year's uh, leader of the running of the bulls is Al Gore. No, Gore, get it? All right, never say, mind. I'm say, done. Uh, I'm done stop with this. The bad man. Sorry. It's actually time to give away a $200 Amazon card to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Compliments of Progress Telerik. But first, let me tell you about Conversational UI from Progress Telerik and Kendo UI. Conversational UI are chatbot framework agnostic user interface controls and components that enable .NET and JavaScript developers to create modern conversational chatbot experiences in their web, mobile, and desktop applications. The industry's first packaged set of user interface components built specifically for chatbots are available as part of the company's Telerik ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET Core, WinForms, WPF, Xamarin products, and Kendo UI for jQuery, Angular, Vue, React, PHP, and JSP libraries. Uh, In other words, all of it. By implementing key UI design features such as calendars, date pickers, list views, and others that are included in the tool sets, developers will be able to improve chatbot conversation through visual elements that enhance the natural flow of conversation. For more information, visit Telerik.com slash conversational dash UI. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Chris Olivier. Congratulations, Chris. Golf clap. Congratulations. Golf, golf clap, Chris. 
And Chris just won a $200 gift card at Amazon.com from Progress Telerik just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to be a member, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and you're in the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree. And uh, it's your turn, Mads. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Oh, uh, that's such a hard question. You know, I'm not a gadget person. You said um, that last that's time. Probably, yeah, that's yeah. probably my 10-year budget for gadgets for my whole family, um, <laughs> including, you know, uh, TVs and stuff. But, uh, okay, so first of all, I would get one of those key rings that um, I know oh, you have that, yeah, that would the- um, <laughs> that let me know if my keys get too far from my phone. But that probably that's probably a little less than five thousand. Um, little I don't less, know, but I, you can buy a lot of them. <laughs> I can. We I could make a little choir of them and perform. <laughs> there you go. Um, They're super annoying but, if you don't set them right. I was I was thinking about this. You you kind of tossed the question at me before the the show went on. Before I had kids, um, I actually had time to sit down and listen to music. And you know, uh, in a couple of years' time, they'll. Hopefully, I'll be out of the house. Maybe I should get a mm-hmm. really good sound system. Maybe that's the thing I'm Nice. Get. Nice. Yeah. And it could be you know, $5,000. It could be really, really good. Right. Yeah. And you could listen to music to code by and waste all that money. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't even be listening to it. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I'm sure I'd still code better if the sound quality of it was good. You're, you're My probably brainwaves right. would, would, would harmonize even better. Mm. Yeah. So what's, uh, is there anything that you want to tell us about the next version of C-sharp? Well, uh. That we don't already know? We're likely, uh, to call it eight. <laughs> 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 uh, so, so that's, that's just a little guess. secret right. right there. You've been listening to .NET Rocks. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, it's, it's hard to tell you secrets because we're so open about things. Yeah. There's a list of approximately 24 features in the, in the C-sharp GitHub repo right now that still have C-sharp 8 as a milestone. Mm. That's not going to that's not gonna be where it ends up. Many of these are going to be triaged out or not going to make it. That's simply the list of things that we're working on in this time frame. And whichever ones make it will make it. But um, some notable ones that um, and we talked about, the nullable reference types, I think that's going to be one of the flagship features. Um, we would like to also uh, have sort of the next, we, we mentioned ASIC a little earlier in the program. Mm-hmm. The next step for ASIC, uh, we think, is uh, ASIC streams. So having some ASIC uh, notion of iEnumerable that you can reach over and that you can produce uh, from iterators in the language, but that have uh, asynchronous waiting built into them so that, you know, you can... You can have streams that take time to beam at you, and you can still reach over them in an async method. Wow. Um, wow, cool. So that, I think, is, is going to be pretty cool. We're talking about a feature that would actually require us to alter the runtime, which is kind of exciting. We haven't done that uh, for language features since generics. Um, hmm. And I think it's uh, – my hope is it's going to be the first of several. I'm thinking of it as a bit of a pilot feature for going back and doing more exciting stuff with interfaces and and uh and types in the runtime type system. I, we we kind of want to get back into that. We're we're all aligned with the runtime 
team on that. So the first little feature there is uh, it's actually not very innovative. It's something that Java already has, uh, but that's kind of convenient, which is the ability to provide default implementations for members and interfaces. Mm. Um, it gives you that ability to add a new member to an interface without breaking your existing implementers. As long as you provide a default implementation, they can pick up on if they don't explicitly implement that interface hmm. or that member. Right. That's such a good idea. Why, yeah. why, why is it taking so long? That's such a good idea. That's a great it's, idea. It, because it requires runtime changes. And for whatever reason, yeah. we've been very adverse to doing those for a long time. Like, I mean, a decade. <laughs> now, when you say runtime changes, are you actually talking about the CLR? Yes, the CLR. Okay. Yeah. So that means you have to have a conversation with another team. It means, well, we have a conversation with them often. It means we have to actually do collaboration with them. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, um, <laughs> and they have to be, and they have to also, you know, um, we have to align on this being a, a good use of our time and resources. Right. And also, it's not just about team coordination, but it's it's about having sort of shied away from solving the problem of rolling out new runtimes to people and have, taking dependencies on new runtimes it's been very, very, it's been a very easy life to just say, well, the new compiler uh, for C sharp has more features, but they run on in all the same places, you know, as long as the libraries are there. Right. Um, right. And, um, and now it's a new kind of, not new, an old kind of dependency that we're coming back, back around to wanting to do because we're realizing that the, to be honest, the, this C sharp compiler is producing more and more complicated output because we feel we felt we had to do everything in the compiler. And I actually, I regret a little bit the features such as async and also as lambdas and so on. I regret not that we did them. That was great. But the way we did them without mm. any participation of the runtime mm. means that they're very, very complicated. Uh, it's hard for, it, for any intermediate tools to pick up on what's going on. And it's hard for the runtime to actually uh, do the optimizations that it could if it knew more about where this came from. Because we rewrite, you know, an async method, we rewrite into, into a very complicated state machine, uh, allocate several objects sometimes that, you know, just because we need to keep things longer than the stack. And some of that might not be necessary, but we have to do it defensively, not knowing what's going on at runtime. And the runtime can't help us because it, by the time, the, the code runs, it's too late and it's lost the information about what we were actually trying to do. Right. So, so it's like, so we need to get out of that mode. Is there an energy to actually restructure those features to have more CLR participation in it? Not right now. Uh, right. That, I mean, that, that, that has daunting consequences in terms of backwards compatibility. Oh, yeah. taking a feature that works and that people depend on it and writing it in a way yeah. where it might not work. Mm -hmm. Right. Or where, it will work or not, depending on where you run. That's that's hmm. that's a problem for another day to go clean that up. I'm not saying right. we're not going to. But first, let's stop going down that path of building everything into exactly. the compiler rather than working with the runtime. Yes, first, do no harm. <laughs> yeah. And so, so, or and, and this is more of the we're in a hole. Let's stop digging. Yes, exactly. Hmm. I'm not saying, and I'm not saying those implementations are bad. Uh, no. And, you know, things are actually chugging along pretty nicely for what we did, but it's just a strategy that is going to, it's not going to be sustainable for much longer. And it also mm -hmm. keeps us from doing things that just are impossible to do with compiler tricks. So right. this is an example of one. The default interfaces, 
interface implementation we just couldn't do with compiler tricks, not in a satisfactory way. So right. we're just saying, okay, let's let's get to work on how how we can um, get back into the business of evolving the runtime for language for language features, and let's use this little one as a pilot feature, and then think about bigger ones once we kind of have once we're back in business, once we figure out how to get back in that business. Sure. And it's it just, it's interesting to hear you talk that way because we really haven't heard since the open sourcing, there hasn't been a lot of action on the CLR other than it runs on all these platforms, which was a ton of work all by itself. Right. And it's, it's been a tough decade <laughs> in a sense for the runtime team in <laughs> that we have been very busy building new runtimes, uh, some of which uh, didn't, didn't last. Uh, let's not yes. dig into that too much, but you know, um, I have a book about that. Thanks very much. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and I think we're at a point now where we can say, "Hey, uh, we're we don't have plans to build any more runtimes. Let's actually uh, let's actually evolve the ones that we still have and um, yeah. and help each other make those better." And that, and and they are doing lots of work on that. Also, uh, improving from a performance perspective, garbage collection and so on. They, the the runtimes. Are seeing a lot of improvement work right now, um, mm. but sort of the next step will be also giving them new expressiveness. Um, at least yeah. that's that's what we hope, hope that we can we can venture into. Well, it's an interesting set of motivation. I mean, clearly there's a difference when you're a runtime guy versus a language guy. Where language guys are always the new feature, making it easier, better syntactic sugar, like just helping devs express themselves more effectively. The CLR got to fall very heavily on. It works every place that people need it to work. It's as fast as it can be. And so like adding new features has got to come in third or fourth in that list. Hmm. Right. It can actually throw a spanner into the wheels, right? Uh, okay, yeah. this new feature. Now we can't make the assumptions that we used to. Oh my God, we're yep. making those assumptions in a million places. How do we how do we get back to as performant as before, right? While embracing this new thing, it's a very tough business. Yeah, yeah, no, there there are no easy jobs in this. No, <laughs> they're just they're different, different set of you know. I talk about this from an IT perspective when I have to wear that IT hat, which happens every so often. Is also you know my job is to keep systems up and running, and my biggest risk to the job is is you coders because you keep adding new under tested code that <laughs> you know breaks my stuff yes so, so you know, as long as we don't deploy software this system's going to run great <laughs> no more coding <laughs> <laughs> memo <laughs> there will be no more software development yes in this software development shop <laughs> yeah None of that. None of that. Yeah, it, yeah it's got to be a balance. And, and I guess it's got to show that kind of long-term value of here's an easy win for this addition, but all these other great things that can come later right. that will depend on it as well. Yes. Yeah, very That's macro right. way to think. Of course, in the story collecting I've been doing around the book, just the the number of times that they did implementations for different chipsets and different environments. Like, if Mac is really going to switch over to ARM, which seems to be the truth, that's going to be interesting for the CLR team too. It's like quickly they're going to have an important machine with a totally new architecture. They're going to have to be concerned about how well that runs. It's definitely, uh, yeah, it, just staying on top of the different Hardware architectures, that's that's yep. a big chunk of, of work right there. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to say Moore's Law is running down, but we are definitely getting to a point where it is time to seriously scrutinize the x86 
uh, infrastructure, the way that our, our current PCs are made and say, is this right? Like, can't we do better? It's fundamentally the same stuff we've been running since the 1980s. We should probably, you know, rethink some things. Sorry, old, you, old, the old hardware guy in me just showed up. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that's fine. You know more about that than me, but uh, but you can certainly see being higher up in the stack. You can see a lot of the challenges in that. Like, how do you? Yeah. When everything depends on that being true, and and everyone's gotten used to those thirty plus years of uh, of consistency, you know, it's not easy to to make a to make a revolution. There's been many attempts at revolutionizing. Um, uh, from the hardware up and many most of them haven't made it right um, yeah just because you got to bring the stacks on top of you along or nobody's gonna benefit from it we were talking to scott hunter uh about the new features in core one of them was um a, a sort of a, a guid or an id that got passed along in an http request in response um, from .NET server to .NET server without your knowledge of it. It just sort of slips under the radar. And then you can use that to trace uh, calls from servers to servers. Does anything like that ever happen at the C-sharp level, you know, where you have these sort of um, stealthy things that, that you can use to, uh, to trace across networks? Uh, I don't know that that shows up much at at the language level, there's definitely, well, uh, let's see, um, not so much at the language level. There's, yeah. There are things in sort of our execution infrastructure where there are various places to stash hidden state, if you will. Right. There's, uh, there are threat local variables and things like that. So uh, the ASIC infrastructure relies heavily on um, being able to look up in ambient state and find um, the synchronization context that yeah. tells you where to where to resume executing once you're done waiting and stuff like that. It's almost like they were implementing, you know, the call stack across multiple servers, which is really yeah. what they're trying to do. I just think it's brilliant. It's really a question for Hunter, not for you. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have him on next then. Yeah. Well, we've we talked to him a couple of times in the last month or two. Yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. The build time frame is always a busy time for conversations about this stuff as well. Yep. Should right. we go after more essential assumptions? You know, you used to be a, an educator of saw uh, of development and a thinker in this space. We have this huge dependency on object orientation, but I think object orientation means a very different thing today than it meant you know, in the 80s and 90s when we were really talking about those sort of fundamental encapsulation, polymorphism, inheritance ideas. I'd, I'd love your take on this, Mads. How do you th talk about it these days? Well, I was thinking about that a little bit recently. Um, I was I was given the, the keynote at NDC, and I, and I decided to take this historical view of object-oounded programming, which started in Oslo 50 years ago, so it was kind of relevant to timing the situation. Was good. Mm. So timing was good, yeah. And, and there are definitely, well, there, at least there are ways in which object-oriented programming as sort of like a pure standalone paradigm is is under pressure today. Uh, I think that the sort of the fine-grained encapsulation of, of mutable state, if you will, uh, flies in the face of 
distributed programming, which, you know, the web sure. and cloud and everything mm -hmm. is, uh, you, you kind of want to at least temper that, uh, with, um, one of the, one of the big things about object oriented programming is the strong tie between the functionality and the state that you have in an object. Like there are methods right there in the class next to the state and they define everything you can do with that state and nobody else gets to touch it. Right. And, and, uh, I think that even though we call it object oriented programming still, I think that you very rarely nowadays see classes where the state is actually truly hidden. <laughs> it, you'll right. have these trivial properties that'll expose it. And really they could just be public fields, right? It's just mm, like yeah. we're, we have this, we sort of have this remnant of sense of guilt if we make it, if we make it <laughs> a field public and we, oh, maybe later I want to change it and I regret having made it a field or, you know. Yeah. So, um, it, I think that shows that that kind of tight packing and hiding, um, it's, it's good if you're only trying to do one thing in your program. And that was the right. case, you know, 20, 30 years ago. A program was for one thing. You build an, an object around a model, but only with one purpose in mind. Mm. And uh, then you build a different one or a variant of it, uh, copy-paste, uh, whatever, but usually built from scratch for another purpose, even if it's modeling the mm -hmm. same external domain. And nowadays, data is much more separated from what you do with it, and it's much more uh, long-lived and and distributed. And so now you, it's it's really become better in many cases to describe the shape of the data separate from the functionality. That's right. and it's part of the realization of that. For instance, that caused us to put pattern matching into C sharp, which is mm -hmm. really a way to to get some of the benefits of virtual methods, where a virtual method can can uh, implement the same function differently depending on the shape of an object, but from inside the object, and pattern matching really lets you do that same thing from outside, where you where you switch over the shape of the object and you do different things depending on the shape. But you do it in one place for all the shapes, rather than doing right. it distributed over the shapes, and you and you do it in a way that's not inherent to the to the objects themselves. Mm. And I think that's I think both have value, and I think that we're all best off if those two paradigms coexist as seamlessly as possible. And that's that's kind of the ideal we're driving to in C sharp, I guess. Uh, but you definitely need to have that balance rather than full-on object-oriented encapsulation for many, many purposes today. That's probably the biggest shift that I see with object-oriented programming. No, and I think, it, I think it's a very important point just recognizing, you know, again, I keep putting my history hat on a lot of this stuff, but it's like a lot of these languages were designed in a time where a PC was not networked, had a single core processor and a very limited amount of memory, and yes. that was as far as it needed to reach. And so a lot of these designs that we turned into fundamentals uh, were, were dependent on that. And now we don't live in that world. We live in a very different world from a hardware perspective, certainly. And, yes. And, a and our expectations about computing reflect that. And so you might ask, like, so is object-oriented programming over? <laughs> and um, and that I, that I will say no. I think that there's something else that's powerful about object-oriented programming, which is not so much the specific language features and exactly how they wire up, but mm -hmm. the mode of thinking, that sort of conceptual yeah. modeling. That's 
that's one of the things that was strong from the beginning and with Simula 50 years ago and really became the driving force of that kind of brand of object-oriented programming. It's been waxing and waning over time with many of the industrial programming languages, but that the mode of writing the program in a way that sort of maps to the way you think about the domain, the, the sure. way that the, the nouns are the, are the key components the and uh, the relationship between the nouns and you know uh, the the concepts that they describe mm. that is that's that was a, a large part of also the driving force uh between a lot of the sort of uh participatory design and uh, object oriented design wave where it's easier to talk to customers that you're building software for about the software when you have concepts in the program that correspond to the concepts in the domain experts brain yeah, right nouns that map between the object model and the domain model right and sometimes i think that's almost the biggest victory of object oriented programming nifty as virtual methods are and all that uh, you know that the ability of the program to resemble somebody's description of their domain uh, to a much mm -hmm. higher degree and and i i really Hope that we can hold on to that, even as we as we temper the object-oriented mechanisms with other mechanisms. Right. Now, I think that that's good insight, Mads. It's, that's the blend, and it isn't going to go away because it does serve that very well. The right. the the subtle aspects of things like mutexes and so forth represent a different tier of engineering and software that that isn't concerned about the domain. It's concerned about scale and interoperability and things like that, that are really our problems and we should work around them. Right. Well, this is all great stuff. Um, can't wait for number eight. It just keeps getting better. Yeah. I can't wait for number eight either, but I'm, I'm more like, <laughs> I can't wait to get it out the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you going to go on vacation after and relax a little bit? Uh, that's, that's probably likely. Let's see what time of year it ends up being. Um, right. but, uh, but you know, uh, there's never a dull moment. The, we just had a design meeting yesterday where we were discussing some potential big features that are definitely going to be post C sharp eight. Cause we, you know, the big stuff has to be front loaded several versions sometimes ahead. Like mm. the nullable feature coming into eight has been, we've been working on that since way before seven shipped mm. and it's going to be similar for some of the nine features that uh, we are now starting to look at what that might be. Uh, so it's not, it's not like a clear cycle where we just said, you know, we just sit down and say, okay, we just shipped seven. What should eight be like? And so right. we, there has to be an overlap. There are many, many trains and, and there isn't a moment where they're all at a stop, you know? Right. You also want to have people, have, you know, get deeply involved in seven, have code out in the field in seven, and get that real, you know, six months later. Here's how it's behaving. I had to go back and look at that thing that I wrote early on, and I thought about it differently now. Like all of that is pretty powerful stuff, and it just takes time. That's true. Yeah. Well, Mads, thank you very much for spending an hour with us again, and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's wonderful. Thank you very much. All right. And we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks.
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a time boy.